All right, please take your Bibles this morning and turn to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah 9, the title of the sermon, The Darkness That Beckoned the Dawn. The Darkness That Beckoned the Dawn. As always, if you need a Bible, there are some on the back table to my right, your left. Feel free to grab one if you need one this morning. Um, In the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, you're there, or getting there. In verse 2, the Bible says this, The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. This is what we call a messianic passage of Scripture. It speaks towards the promises of the one who would be Messiah, of the coming Messiah, an event which was fulfilled in part in the day of our Lord's birth. When we see this prophecy actually quoted in the New Testament, it is not at the time of our Lord's birth. It is actually farther along in his ministry. However, uh, as we'll see a little bit this week and specifically next week as we look at verses 6 and 7, this prophecy is rooted in the promise of a child being born. This week we're going to focus our time on darkness. The darkness which beckoned the dawn. Why was Jesus so necessary? Why did Messiah need to come? We're going to focus on the shadow of death that the light of the world scattered. And I would like to begin with the area of which we're less familiar and move to the one of which perhaps we're more familiar, the one of which perhaps we, we might say we are, we are intimately familiar with as uh, frail, sinful humans. We'll move from the law, which is abolished, it's been fulfilled in Christ, which we don't uh, place ourselves under anymore, but first we're going to understand the context of the law. We're going to understand the, the context within which Jesus came, the frustrations within which Jesus came as far as the spiritual relationship with God were concerned that make Jesus' appearance so impactful, not just in the day he came, as we could read in Luke about Simeon and Anna and, and uh, even um, Zechariah uh, and see the in- incredible excitement surrounding Messiah, but also in our own lives. And how Jesus' birth and Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection impact us in these same ways today. So I'd like you to transport yourself with me this morning to the Old Testament, to the world in which Israel was functioning prior to Christ. There's a God in heaven who has revealed himself to mankind, and this revelation has come through the prophets. And his standard has been codified in law given by the hand of God to the prophet Moses in what we call the law of Moses. Now within that law was established a specific worship system and that worship system in the law revolved around a a, um, structure originally called the tabernacle. The tabernacle... And later, uh, it would be made more established to be more uh, permanent as a temple, was the very center of the worship of God upon this earth. It was the dwelling place of God with man. If you wanted to draw nigh to God, you drew nigh unto his tabernacle, because his tabernacle was where he dwelt. 
The tabernacle was commanded to be constructed with extreme care as to the details. Every measurement God had said had to be exactly correct. So much so that God commanded Moses in Exodus chapter 25, verse 9. He said, according to all that I show thee, after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. He went on to say in verse 40 of Exodus 25, and look that thou make them after the pattern which was showed thee in the mount. God said it's very important that you make it this way. And we'll find out why uh, as we continue through the text. So they did. They made it the exact dimensions. They made it with the exact materials that God asked of them. The tabernacle was 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, 15 feet tall, approximately. Uh, they gave the measurement in cubits. Of course, a cubit, not every, no one's exactly sure what a cubit is today. Most people say it's probably around 18 inches or a foot and a half. So a foot and a half, 10 cubits would be 15 feet uh, and such. So um, about... Uh, 45 feet long by 15 feet wide by 15 feet tall was the tabernacle proper. It had a wooden frame covered in gold, silver bases draped with various tapestries bound together with golden and bronze clasps. It was surrounded by a fence of bronze pillars and fine white linen that was 150 feet long by about 75 feet wide. And that would be the fence that was surrounding it. Imagine seeing this. They're wandering in the wilderness and you see this beautiful purple tent and you see these bronze pillars or these bronze, this bronze fence post with pure white tapestry surrounding it and it's just glowing in the sun and you've got this beautiful tabernacle and this beautiful surroundings and then of course within it, smoke is rising up from the sacrifices that were perpetually really being made on the altar. The tabernacle was broken up on the inside into two sections. I hope that this is semi-readable for you this morning. The first section was 30 feet long by 15 feet wide, and it was called the holy place. Only the priests could enter into the holy place. They would enter several times a day. This is a blow-up diagram. It's, it's expanded there. Uh, on the sides there would be the walls, on the back wall, and then the front you have five pillars. Those five pillars were made of brass. On the inside you had four pillars to separate the holy place from the holiest of holies. Those four pillars were made of gold, or, or covered in gold, excuse me. So that first section of the, the tabernacle was 30 feet long by 15 feet wide, called the holy place. Only the priests could enter in, and they would enter in daily to perform the various rituals of the daily sacrifices of the daily. Um, you had the showbread, and you had um, the, the candles that had to be dressed from the lampstand, and the prayers that were made on the altar of incense. There was a second section, however, and it was separated by very thick curtains, and that second section was a 15-foot square room. And there, the Bible says, it was called the Holy of Holies. And it was in there that the actual presence of God, the physical presence of God, resided among his people. Only the high priest could enter into that place of the physical presence of God and only one time per year on the Day of Atonement could he enter in. Within the, the tabernacle complex, there were only six pieces of furniture. If you imagine 
this complex, it's facing, the door is facing east. The door always faced east. And the first thing, if you were to go through that, that white linen fence that was surrounding it, you would come to the brazen altar. That is where all of the burnt offerings would take place. Then after that, there would be a laver. A laver it was like a, a, a wash basin, a large wash basin, where the priests would wash themselves before entering into the tabernacle proper. This would be the place where they would cleanse themselves to enter into the tabernacle. Once they entered into the tabernacle, the first, the, through the first veil, on the right, the north side, you would find a table of showbread. Twelve pieces of flat bread that were stacked together on that table. They would be eaten by the priests. On the left side, the south side, would be the golden lampstand. That would have seven branches. It was lit from the fire that was from off the altar. It was to remain perpetually lit. And there was a, a system of olive oil that would drip into it that would be the fuel that would keep that lamp burning. Not a menorah, by the way. A menorah has nine um, lights, whereas a, the golden lampstand only had seven. So there is a difference between the two. Now, there's a disagreement about where the altar of incense resided. It was used every day, the Bible tells us, in the morning and evening for prayers. And the Holy of Holies could only be entered one time per year, so it would seem to demand that the altar of incense was on the, the, within the holy place, not the Holy of Holies. It would seem to demand that it was on the east side of that curtain. However, the, the clearest teaching that we have in the Bible on where the altar of incense actually was is in Hebrews chapter 9. We'll go there in a few minutes. And in Hebrews chapter 9, Paul seems to say there that it resided within the Holy of Holies. I have yet to figure out all of the ins and outs of how that works. Um, and I'll leave that to smarter men to continue to debate uh, because I don't have an answer for you. There's a few answers here. There's a few answers there. I don't have it. So I'll leave that to smarter men than I. But we know this, within the second veil for sure, the final piece of furniture was the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant had on top of it the mercy seat with the cherubim. And the Ark of the Covenant had within it, as we know, three things. It contained the Ten Commandments that were given by God on Mount Sinai. It contained Aaron's bud that, or Aaron's rod that budded on the day when Dathan Abiram and the sons of Korah sought to um, uh, challenge his authority. And it contained a bowl of manna from their wilderness wanderings. Twice per day, a priest would stand in front of the golden altar and burn incense and pray. Daily, there were meal offerings, guilt, peace, trespass offerings, nearly constant. All throughout the day, people were bringing in animals to be slain, to be burned on the altar. And the reason for these animal sacrifices was that the shedding of blood was necessary for atonement. The blood of the innocent had to be spilled for the blood of the guilty. So the fact was, God's people sinned. And their guilt had to be dealt with. So the blood of an innocent animal was spilt to cover the guilty, to serve in place of the blood of the guilty. 
The guilty being those who had sinned in Israel, the innocent being the lambs and the goats that were killed in their place. So the shedding of animal blood became the temporary atonement for the sins of the people. Now imagine with me, I'm asking you to transport yourself into the Old Testament. Imagine with me the bloody mess that must have been the altar of burnt offering. All day animals being killed. All day their blood being drained. All day that blood being shed. The priest's garments, which were white, by the way, <laughs> imagine what they look like by the end of the day. Stained with the blood of all of these animals. A picture of the natural consequences of sin. Imagine all of this. All of the blood designed to be that visible manifestation of their guilt. The great cost of atonement. And imagine the spiritual frustration of this system. You sin. That sin bothers you. So you go and you, you, you do a trespass offering on the altar and you, you give your offering and, and that offering is made and is burned upon the altar. And so sin is atoned. 613 laws are identified in the Torah to be kept by the Jewish people. A violation of any one of those 613 laws meant that you were in need of cleansing, meant that you were guilty. You were in need of atonement. You could not come before the presence of the Lord because you were guilty. And this meant the shedding of blood. So you would bring your sacrifice, the blood would be shed, the atonement would be made, but then you'd wake up the next day, and on that day you break one of those 613 laws and you're in need of cleansing all over again. You've done it again. Imagine the spiritual frustration, the cycle of wanting to please God but falling short of His perfection, of doing these sacrifices and walking away ceremonially cleansed but knowing that there's still this thing in your conscience that it's just, it's not actually dealt with, it's just covered. Imagine the guilt and the shame and the sorrow, the frustration of such a system. Now, with this foundation, I taught all of this so that Hebrews 9 would make a little more sense to you. With this foundation, consider what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick, the table, and the showbread. We talked about that, right? which is called the sanctuary, and after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer, that would be the altar of incense. That's why I, you know, I said that it's within that second veil. That's what it says in Hebrews. There's argument about that. Uh, and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded in the tables of the covenant. And over it, the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly. So here we have the description of the tabernacle as I gave it to you already. The furniture of the tabernacle, each representative of some facet of man's relationship with God. More, more specifically, each representing some facet of Jesus Christ's eventual ministry. We, we've talked about that in various forums um, we're not going to talk about that today. The most important thing in the tabernacle being the presence of God among his people over the Ark of the Covenant, shadowing the mercy seat. Something which Paul says, uh, we can't speak particularly, no one really knows what that was about. 
Uh, there's not a lot of writings about what that looked like. Uh, when they talk about the glory of God, uh, what, what is called the Shekinah glory, the Jews call it, nobody really knows what that was. Paul then continues in verses 6 and 7. He says, now when these things were thus ordained, all of that, the, 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 the sacrifices and the laws and the system and the tabernacle, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God, but into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. So again, we spoke of this as well. Daily, the service to God was performed in the first portion of the tabernacle. Daily, they, they dressed the lamps. Daily, they performed prayers, morning and evening. This is what Zechariah was doing when the angel appeared to him and announced John the Baptist in Luke chapter 1. He was in there offering the prayers up unto the Lord. Only once every year, however, the high priest would enter into the actual physical presence of God and always with blood. They would shed the blood of the atonement lamb. That blood would be brought in and they would sprinkle that blood upon the mercy seat and that would be the national atonement for the sins of the nation for that year, the sins would be atoned for. And on that day, the blood of the atonement would cover the errors of the people. But while the sin would be atoned, we'll see in just a few moments, it could not cleanse the conscience of the people. Verses 8 through 10. The Holy Ghost this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while as yet the first tabernacle was yet standing. Nobody, you couldn't just waltz into the presence of God and confess your sin and be done with it. You couldn't just waltz into the presence of God and receive cleansing. Once a year, only the high priest, which was a figure of the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation, that being the time of Christ. These external rituals were able to ceremonially clean the people. They, they temporarily atoned for the sins of the people, representatively cleansed the people, but they were unable to remove the stain. Can I put it that way? You know, sometimes you have a tablecloth or something and you get something and you spill on it and you put it through the wash and you use all the removers and whatnot. And so it's clean, but it's still stained. The stain is there. A couple of weeks ago, we did a baptism over at Rockford Baptist. And uh, every time, every, I, 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 we don't do it all that often, so maybe the pastor just forgets. But every single time, uh, he tells me, because they use, they use well water to fill it up and then they heat it. And he says... Don't worry, it looks really murky, but the water's fine. <laughs> and he tells me that every time. It's, 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 it's clean, but it's really murky because of all the sediment and whatnot in it, right? That's the idea. These sacrifices, they were atoning. They were, they were, they were covering the sin, but they couldn't clean the stain. They couldn't cleanse the conscience. And so the guilt remained. The law had no capacity to change the condition of the heart. The law could not come... It, people could not come through the law into complete rightness with God. The guilt remained, the shame remained, and so it is that those who longed to live lives of righteousness found frustration at every turn. Now this struggle under the law, the fr frustration of wanting to do right but not having the power to do right 
is described by Paul in Romans chapter 7. And in Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 14, he says this, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. The law was not the problem. The problem is me. He goes on to say, For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. That the law is good, because I know that I ought to be doing it. I just don't want to do it. Now then... It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. I want to do it. My will is there, but my capacity is not. This was the frustration under the law. The law was spiritual, but I'm carnal. I see what the law says. I want to do it. I want to be perfect before God, but I can't be perfect before God. I can't do it. I was talking to a girl in the jail this week. And uh, as I was chatting with her about salvation, she had a very law, legalistic idea of salvation. She, I, I gave her the gospel. And as I gave her the gospel, I said, I said, you know, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. And she said, yeah, but she said, I've had a lot of people teach me about this concept of repentance, that I need to repent of my sin. And she said, the problem is, is that I know I'm going to keep doing wrong and that I don't, though I, I kind of want to do right, I, I know that I don't, I, I also want to sin. And so I'm struggling because I don't really want to repent of my sin in that case. And, and, and those of you that have been here for a while know that this is why I don't preach that kind of a gospel. Because what this poor young girl was convinced of is that she had, to, she had to get rid of her sin before she could come to Christ. No man can get rid of their sin in order to come to Christ. It's impossible. We learned about that last week in Luke 18 with the rich man uh, last Sunday evening. Jesus said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples said, who then can be saved? And Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. You can't yield everything that you need to yield. You can't make yourself right in order to come to God. That's why you have to come to God first and have him make you right. So what do we preach here about repentance? It's repentance from dead works and faith towards God. It's a repentance in anything or everything that I'm trusting in to get myself to heaven. And then when I lay myself at Christ's feet and I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior, then the Holy Spirit indwells me. He breaks the chains of sin and my sin begins to fall away and my desire wells up in me to do right because God is in me giving me the capacity to do right. He changes me from the inside out and outside in change can't work. It cannot work. You don't get yourself right on the outside and then it works its way into your heart. You go to Christ. He makes your heart right. And then the outside becomes right as you submit yourself to Christ. That's the gospel. And so I was trying to explain this to this young lady and she just wasn't quite there yet. So pray for her. Her name is Molly, if you would do so. 20 years old. Got a lot of life ahead of her. Got a lot of time still. But that's the idea here. Paul is struggling in, in, in this concept under the law because the law said you need to do these things. And he said, I want to do these things, but there's something in me that keeps making me also want to sin. And it's compelling me to sin. And it's like there's this wrestling match within me. 
He says, for the good, uh, where am I here? <laughs> I don't normally stop in the middle of a reading here. Okay, he, uh, for the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that which I would not, it is no more I that do it, but that sin problem that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me, for I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, he says, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? This is the frustration under the law. This is what was felt under the law. This was the struggle. This was the frustration. This was pre-Christ. This was the darkness that beckoned the dawn. This is the people that sat in darkness that were looking for the great light. This is the frustration. The law of God is spiritual and right and good, but I just can't live up to it, even if I want to. Even if I wake up and say, I'm going to do right today. My daughters have been doing this lately, and I thank God for it. They've woken up, and one daughter or another daughter will look at me and say, I'm going I'm to obey mommy and daddy today, and I'm going to be kind today. And they, they're determined to do it. Doesn't always mean it happens. But that's the determination, Right? And that was the idea. Even if I wake up and say, I am going to obey God today. These, and, and of course, you know, the law is, is fulfilled. We don't follow the law today. We're not under the law today. But if I were to wake up and identify all 613 of those laws that Orthodox Jews follow every day of their lives, or they, they, they try, and they don't do it either, by the way. They can't. No one can. That's Romans 7. That's the frustration. But if we were to do that, we'd still fall short. This body of sin, which separates me from the love of God, from the fellowship of God, exists. And so I rest under guilt. The legacy of man's sin is guilt, shame, and condemnation. This was the perpetual frustration of the Old Testament believer. That though he loved God and he wanted to do what was right, his sin nature ensnared him. And there was no capacity for him to fully perform what he desired to perform under the law because of that thing within us called sin, the stain. Imagine living under the law then. Keep yourself in that Old Testament economy for a few more minutes. Imagine that place. Now, was it misery and horror? No, because the just shall live by faith. There were still plenty of justified men and women. There were still plenty of people that followed the word of God into salvation. And then they saw it. And, and we, read it, we read of the joy of the Old Testament in Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is an entire chapter about delighting in the word of God, the law of God. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I delight to do thy precepts, O Lord. And so there was delight, there was joy. We read about that. But there was also this nagging spiritual frustration that things just weren't the way you want them to be. There wasn't fellowship. There wasn't communion. There wasn't closeness. There, the access to God was closed. It was one man, one day in a year that could go get actual direct access to God and everybody else went through him. And, it, and you didn't even know the guy, most likely. And yet he was your mediator between God and you. That was the system. The people walked in darkness, but they did so with the promise of light. The promise was found in Jeremiah 31. It's written about in Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7 through 13, the Bible says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, 
then should no place have been sought for the second, that second covenant being salvation. For finding fault with them, he said, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Notice he says finding fault with them, not it, not the covenant, but the people that were under the covenant, right? He says, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people, and they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith, A new covenant he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away, he writes here. There was a promise of light in the midst of the darkness. There was a promise of the solution to the law's incapacity through man's sin. There was a promise not just of ceremonial cleansing, but physical cleansing. There was a promise not just of the ability to enter the tabernacle grounds, but the ability to enter into the Holy of Holies yourself, to actually know God. There was a promise that the access to the holiest of holies would be opened. And on that day, some 2,000 years ago, when the angels proclaimed as the babe was wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. The peace and goodwill toward men is that the light had broken into the darkness. The darkness had given way to dawn. So we read in Hebrews 9, once again, verses 11 to 14. But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. The picture is this, that Jesus on that Passover day entered, when he died and his blood was shed, he metaphorically, effectively entered into the Holy of Holies, placed his blood on the mercy seat and became the forever perpetual, perpetual satisfying atonement for mankind. So that every man now through Christ can enter into the presence of God himself. For if the blood of, of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Jesus enters into the holy place. He spills his own blood thus satisfying God's wrath against sin, purchasing righteousness for all who would be in him, doing for us in full what the blood of bulls and of goats could never do, obtaining eternal redemption for us. Now we have a bit of a different situation today than they had then. Jesus came 2,000 years ago, 
the light has broken into the darkness of this world, and we have seen that light influence this world for centuries now. But that darkness still prevails in many hearts, doesn't it? That frustration over sin, that young lady that I spoke to this past Wednesday at the jail that I was telling you about, Molly. When she sat down, she said, I, I feel like I, I want to have a relationship with God, but I don't know how to get it. That's what she told me. That's what started that conversation. She wanted it. She didn't know how to get it. That frustration is still alive and well in hearts. That darkness prevails in so much of this world today. That missing peace, trying to earn their way to God, trying to earn their way to something, to peace, to joy, and even in some believers who have wandered from the will of, of the Lord, so are walking out of fellowship with God, who have, as we talked about last week with forgiveness, when Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches, who have severed themselves from the vine. Still living in the frustration of these sinful choices. And that's where what we have learned today about the light which shined in the darkness comes into play. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, the Bible says this, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined it in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And I'd like to talk about this problem of darkness today, where that problem still finds itself, the ways in which it manifests itself, and how Jesus has shined the light. We're going to talk about three problems that we find in the world today and find how Jesus, born as a child some 2,050 uh, or so years ago, not quite that long, 2020 maybe, how his birth, then eventual death and resurrection changed everything. Let's talk first about the sin problem. Sin is a major problem. As we study the themes of Scripture, in fact, sin becomes one of the biggest problems. It is the separating force between God and man. For the wages of sin is death, the Bible says. Sin separates us. Death is separation. That's what that word means. Physical death is separation of the, the material from the immaterial, right? The body from the spirit. Soul and spirit, depending on who you talk to. Body, either the body and the soul separate from the spirit or the body separates from the soul and the spirit, depending on who you talk to. That's what I mean by that. Spiritually, though, spiritual death is separation from God. When the spirit, which was made to commune with God, is separated in fellowship from God. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, Know ye not? that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God, be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. The unrighteousness of the world is evidenced in the sins which dominate this world. And in sin is the evidence of our necessary separation from God. I often describe it when I'm telling someone the gospel as the difference between the sickness and the symptoms. 
When one of my children gets sick, the ways that we find out, generally speaking, when they're sick is they'll wake up and they have a fever or they have a cough. And so we'll take their temperature and I'll find that one of my children is at, say, 101, 101.5 degrees. And then I know that they're sick. Now, I can treat the fever, but the fever is not actually what's wrong with them, is it? The fever is a symptom of what is wrong with them. It might be an infection, it might be a virus, but the body raises its temperature in order to kill the actual problem. Viruses, they, have, uh, they, they can't be sustained in, in, in the hotter environment and whatnot, and so the body raises its body temperature to weaken the virus so that the body can kill the virus. The fever is a symptom of the problem. The cough is a symptom of a problem. The, the runny nose is a symptom of a problem. It's not the problem itself. And unless we take care of the problem itself, the symptoms can only be masked, hidden. You can take a decongestant or an antihistamine or a Tylenol to make the fever go down, but that's not actually solving the problem. That's just masking the symptoms. Sin is the same way. The things that are committed, fornication and idolatry and, uh, and adultery and uh, being effeminate and abusers of themselves of mankind, and, uh, which, which is sodomy, and, and, and thieves and covetousness and drunkards and revilers and extortioners, these are symptoms of a deeper problem. Paul would remind the believers in Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, For ye know, for this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Those who reject Christ and so remain dead in their sins thus remain separated from God. Upon these children of disobedience, God's wrath must rest because they are unrighteous evidenced by their sin. Their sins that we commit are, an ev are the evidence of the sin problem. When you go out and you lie and you cheat and you steal and any of those things that you might do, that is evidence of, a de of the problem. That's not the, the, that's not the problem itself. Those are the symptoms. And so there are lots of people in this world who have done a good job of, of masking the symptoms, but they've never actually solved the problem the problem's still in their heart. They've just masked the symptoms. So they don't overtly lie and cheat and steal in a way that they would get caught or, or, or they, they don't steal and they don't murder and they don't commit adultery. And so they say, well, I'm doing pretty good, except that do, have you ever dishonored your parents? Do you lie? Those sort of, well, yeah, but those are little things. They're on the list. They're symptoms of a deeper problem. You can take Tylenol all day to keep that fever down, but until the virus is gone, the fever's going to come back the moment you stop the Tylenol. Jesus didn't come expecting us all to mask our symptoms for the rest of our lives. He came to cure the virus so that the symptoms would go away. Inside out, not outside in, right? And that the end of this alienation, Ephesians 4.18, describes these who, who are living dead in their sins as being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their hearts. The end of this path of 
separation because of sin is called the second death or eternal death. Eternal separation from God. And we read about this in Revelation 21, verse 8. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Eternal conscious torment in the lake of fire, which is called the second death, the second separation. The first separation is when your body, your material and your immaterial separate. The second separation, if for those who must experience it, is when they are forever separated from God spiritually in the place of torment. So that's the problem of darkness. Let's talk about the light. Humanity has a major problem and it's a sin problem. And the devastating consequences of man's commitment to sin are not just realized in eternal separation. Look around at the marks of sin upon this world. We see it in the hopeless expression in the face of the man who has pursued greed and covetousness and envy but found in it no fulfillment. We see it in the lightless eyes of the woman who has sought attention she so deeply desires through yielding her honor and her dignity to others. We see it in the tears of those who are held captive by the will of Satan, not knowing how to break the chains of his deceit and his methods and living in frustration and not knowing what to do about it. We see it in the anger upon the faces of those who have sold themselves to the world and the flesh and the devil. We see it in the eyes of those children whose lives have been ruined by the sins of their parents, who are listening as their parents or watching as their parents go down a path of destruction and lead them down it too. The majority of the people I speak to in the jail, the addicts in particular, have parents and grandparents who are struggling too. Same problems. We see it in the fears men and women carry around them because of the evils that have ravaged them. We see it in the anxieties and the depression and the confusion in the hearts of men and women. We see it in the resentment and the bitterness that glow in the eyes of so many because of unforgiveness. And such were some of us. And I'm not saying that anyone, because no one in this room is sinlessly perfect, but something happened to the majority of you, huh? There came a day when God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, shined it in your heart. And when he shined that light into your heart, something happened. For some, it may have been quick. For some others, it may have been gradual. But something happened. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Various ways I've heard it described over time. Some people say that it's like, that it's like a blindfold dropped from their eyes and they saw the world in a whole new way. For some, they describe it as uh, simply they didn't want their, the, the things that they used to want and they just uh, they started wanting new and different things. They can't explain it. It's just like something changed inside of them. It's like a, a switch was flipped on. The young lady I've been asking you to pray for in the jail for some time now, Becky, is that way. Addict, never even had a desire not to be an addict. Got saved in August. And it's like a, a flip of a switch. All of a sudden, she stopped desiring those things. She wanted new things. All of a sudden, she started feeling like she needed to love those that hated her be kind to those that were unkind to her. She started praying for them. She, she, she wanted to be removed from conflict. She couldn't understand it. She, 
she, she, doesn't, she didn't know how to describe it, but something happened to her. What happened? Well, it's not that on that day she finally said, I'm going to stop manifesting these symptoms. Of, uh, no, it was that the cause got dealt with, the problem got dealt with, sin got dealt with, and all of a sudden the symptoms started going away. There was a time, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, where you were made a new creature. God gave you that thing He promised way back in Jeremiah 31. He put His law into your mind and He wrote His law upon your heart and He changed your heart. He gave you a heart of flesh, a new heart. The chains of sin were broken. To what end? To what end did God break those chains of sin? Romans chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. That's the promise. That's the promise. Freedom. Not that you'll become sinlessly perfect, at least until the day that you inherit your resurrected body in, in, in eternal life. But that you, the chains of sin are broken. He that is dead is freed from sin. The old man is crucified with Christ. That we might live in newness of life. That's the picture of baptism, right? Buried with him by baptism into death. Raised to walk in newness of life. It happens at the moment you accept Christ as your Savior. Baptism is the physical manifestation, the proclamation that it's happened to you. Sin problem solved. How do we receive it? John 3, 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever, gospel's a whosoever will gospel, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. We were already condemned. Our sin did that just fine. <laughs> the law did that just fine. They were, walking, they were walking in condemnation. That was the law. For uh, God came not into this world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That if you will accept the gift, that there's nothing you can do to get yourself to heaven, that you have, maybe you've been trying for years to patch the, the problems, the symptoms. You've been taking your Tylenols and your antihistamines and all of those things to cover the symptoms of your sin, but you've never gone to Christ to have the problem dealt with. If you, when you accept, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. The sin problem. Two more. Second, the guilt problem. The guilt problem. That first one, of course, is for those who are not in Christ, uh, but it also is a great reminder to we who are in Christ, isn't it? Praise the Lord that the problem has been dealt with. But let's talk about guilt. And we need to talk about guilt because it's not just the unbelieving world that lives in guilt. There's a lot of believers that live in guilt, shame, and condemnation as well. Speaking of the sacrificial system in Hebrews chapter 10, Paul writes this, but in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sin. Every year, that shame, that guilt, it's brought up again. There's a remembrance again. The condemnation is brought up again. This is what the law introduced. 
We spoke earlier of those who grew up in liturgical systems, some form of, of liturgy, or if you grew up in maybe a legalistic household or a cult, what we might call the heavily religious systems. There are rules, there are laws, and the rules and the laws define your life. And the breaking of those laws means guilt and shame and condemnation. And for so many of these liturgical denominations and, and legalistic systems, they drive you by guilt into action. That's what the law did too. It drove you, it, dro it drove man by guilt and shame into action. For many, even in our circles, this is how life is lived. You live life under guilt. Shame and guilt because you know what's in your heart or because you don't feel like you measure up. Your house is nothing more than a place of shame and of guilt. You're guilty over the things you do. You're guilty over the things that you don't do. Your prayers reflect nothing but shame and guilt. You feel crushed under the weight of the condemnation that is the lack of perfection in you or in your family. Many religious unbelievers live under this crushing weight. Many legalistic believers live under this crushing weight as well. But Jesus came to lift the shame, to lift the guilt, to satisfy the condemnation. When Jesus was born, the angels declared goodwill toward men. Shame, guilt, condemnation, these are to be little more than faded memories buried in the long dead recesses of the flesh that is now dead in Christ. There's a difference between shame, guilt, condemnation, and conviction, by the way. When you feel conviction over sin, that's the Holy Spirit telling you you did something wrong and calling you to flee to Christ to get it right. Conviction has a solution and it brings you into fellowship. Shame, guilt, and condemnation are not of God. They are of the devil. They are of your own heart. And they tear you down and they make you feel like you can't be right with God. They make you feel like you're separated from God. Shame, guilt, and condemnation remove you from the fellowship with God. And they tell you you need to stay down because you're not worthy. There's none of that in Christ. In Christ, there is conviction which says flee to Christ for forgiveness and be right and get it done with. There's a difference. Shame, guilt, condemnation, they are to be objects over which we claim victory and rejoice. They are not to be our motivation. They are to be the bane of our former existence. They are not to be an element in our lives in Christ, but they are to be, a, they, they are to be seen as a threat to our life in Christ. There are certain chapter divisions of the Bible which I, I really don't like. The chapter divisions are not inspired by any means. They were added later for the sake of organization and clarity. And so there are certain times where if you stop at the end of one chapter, you're only getting like half a thought. And in Romans chapter 7, it's kind of that way, into Romans chapter 8. I read to you uh, all but the last verse of Romans 7. Paul saying, for the good that I would, I do not, and the evil that I would not, that I do. And then he, he concluded with, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? After Paul describes that frustration in Romans chapter 7 of the law, look what he says in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Do you see what he, what, what he just did in contrast? He said, the law is spiritual, but I'm carnal, sold under sin. This is my frustration of my sin under the law. 
frustration, shame, guilt, I can't measure up. Oh, wretched man that I am, I'm guilty. I'm, I'm, I'm under condemnation, I'm under shame, and I can't do anything about it. But under Christ, there is no condemnation. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. The law is fulfilled. There's no condemnation for the law anymore because it's been satisfied in you if you are in Christ. The light that shined into your hearts did not just free you from the ravages of sin. The light that shined into your hearts freed you from the weight of shame and of guilt and of condemnation. It has no place in your life. And if there is some in your life, it's not supposed to be there. Would you flee to Christ? Would you leave it with him? Say, Pastor, I just don't know how to do that. Would you come to me and let me help you through that? Because you don't need to live that way. You don't need to live that way. Guilt, shame, condemnation, they are parasites of the flesh which cling to the new man and do nothing but suck out of you the life that is intended for you in Christ. It does nothing but consume the joy and the peace that is yours by right in Christ. Freedom from guilt, shame, and condemnation is yours. If you carry these things, know this today. You don't have to. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, that's why you're carrying it. Flee to Him. Accept Him as your Savior. Accept the gift of salvation. If you have accepted that gift and you're still living under it, then you're like the child who was brought into the palace of the king from the streets. You were a street urchin. You were brought in and the king clothed you and he, he uh, cleaned you up and he fed you and you got... You got healed and, and everything was good. And then one day you push yourself back from the king's table and you go out in the streets and you get your little cup and you begin begging again. That's the idea. You don't have to be there. It's like the prisoner who's been released and you walk back into the jail cell and you slap the irons back on your wrists. It's not for you. You don't need to be there. And if you're living there, Christian, under shame and condemnation and guilt, know that when Jesus was born some 2,000 years ago, the light broke through the darkness and the condemnation was condemned. Finally, first the sin problem, second the guilt problem, finally the fellowship problem. Humanity has within it a burning desire to know his creator, and in my sanctified imagination, I don't wonder if at the moment Adam ate of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, to whatever degree he might have actually weighed the risk-reward of being willing to lose some things by disobeying God, I wonder if the thing that Adam least anticipated was the degree to which he would long for fellowship with God after he partook of the fruit. Fellowship upon this earth is a tumultuous thing, is it not? You, I hope you have fellowship with your parents, but you don't choose them. They may listen to your problems or they may not listen to your problems. They may be kind or they may not be kind. They may ignore you or they may be very active in your life. You don't choose them. They may be good, they may be bad. You can find friends, but friends will fail you, won't they, at some point. You have a spouse, perhaps, but that spouse is imperfect. None of them can truly understand your heart and all of its nuances. None of them will ever fully understand 
everything about you. None of them can truly meet the need of having someone not just to listen, not even just to understand, but to be able to uh, comfort you in an, an impeccable way. But the light that came into the world when the people walked in darkness is different. Staying in Hebrews, we've done a lot of Hebrews today. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16 says this, For we have not an high priest, speaking of Christ, which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Our Savior knows us. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our failings. He knows our struggles. He knows our concerns. He knows our fears. He knows our, our everything. And we can know Him. We can walk with Him. We can have a personal fellowship with Him. We can go to the throne boldly and directly 24 hours a day to meet with our Creator. This is true knowledge of the holy. Adam walked with God in the cool of the day. Enoch walked with God and was not for the Lord took him. Abram walked with God and was called a friend of God. Most, however, for the first 4,000 or so years of her history, worshipped God, but if they wanted the Lord's presence, the closest they could come was to get within the vicinity of the tabernacle. But you and I, we've seen the great light. That light has shined into our hearts. We have been given of His Spirit and we can commune with Him directly. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. Next week we're going to talk about verses 6 and 7. Verse 6 says this, For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. The mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Let me ask you a few questions as we close this morning. Number one, are you free from sin? Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you ever come to the point where you recognize, I'm a sinner, there's nothing I can do to get myself to heaven, only Jesus Christ can do it, and I'm going to accept that gift. If you're not, would you do it today? If you have done it, are you living like it? For he that is dead is freed from sin. Are you walking in the freedom that you've been given in Christ? Or are you wallowing in the mud of the sins that you have already been clean from? Second, free from guilt. Are you free from guilt this morning? If you're an unbeliever, you can't be free from that guilt. That guilt will haunt you until the day that you come to Christ. But if you're a believer, have you come to that point where you have felt that freedom, where you're living in that freedom. Let him that is dead to sin reckon himself to be so, Romans 6 says. Are you living in the freedom from guilt and shame and condemnation that God has provided for you? Finally, are you in fellowship? Are you walking with the Lord? Are you abiding in him, John 15? Are you walking with the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5? First, you have to be in Christ. You have to have your sins confessed. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If I, we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Are you walking in fellowship with Him today? It is your birthright in Christ to have communion with your Creator. That's what was provided for us some 2,000 years ago when that little baby was born in that manger. Let's close in prayer.